Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Welcome back from summer vacation <laughs> into the cool of the autumn. to the darkening evenings. <clears throat> so we're uh, exploring, for those of you who have been on a long trip, <laughs> the four foundations. <laughs> you have to have been on a long trip. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're looking at the fourth foundation, which is essentially abiding in awareness. <clears throat> now, I want to a review slightly tonight, but also to encourage something forward here. That uh, spirituality really doesn't work unless you have both the form and the formless. In some ways, they mutually define one another. But we try to make it work from just the sense of self-formation, of objects, ourselves as an object or the objects that we see, and we are desperately longing because something in us feels uh, that there is a missing ingredient, which there is, the formless, but we try to make it into the world of form and make it through the world of form, finding our spiritual, our spiritual legs, so to speak. And we do this uh, because forms can't see the sacred. You can't see the sacred within a form because all you see is the reflection of the world from the mirror of what the mind sees. It sees objects because that's what the mind determines life to be. That's how it perceives life. And so it's, that very way of perception is, are like blinders to the sacred. So the sacred can't get in. And yet, because our composition is both form and formless, we sense another possibility, and that's what sets us off in a journey, even though we try to partake that journey through the form that we have established within ourselves, And we try to do various things to this object called me. We do uh, lots of what we think are spiritual uh, objectives. We polish the form and we uh, create all kinds of exercises that the, and hoops that the form can jump through. But the form pretty much stays itself, doesn't it? I stay myself with slight modification, a slight character adjustments, with added benefits of some cultivated states that I have practiced in, and, uh, and indulge myself within. But if I really want some access to the sacred from, a, from the sense of form, I'm going to have to, need, I need an intermediary. I need a symbol that represents form to me. And so that's what the cross is. Now I can get a sense from a symbol that's also a form that there must be something outside of this form that represents salvation or heaven, or whatever we might be. Another symbol that we might use is an ancient text. And those ancient texts seem to be coded with words that call us out of form. And then another symbol that we can use 
are uh, spiritual intermediaries, like teachers or gurus or people of that such that we ascribe formlessness or some sense of sacred to because they look a little different than we do, because they hold themselves a little different, because how could, anybody, how could any form have that much calm? <laughs> Don't look this way. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've intentionally in my life refused to move in that direction because I, I, want, I want form to see itself. I want to see what's here. And I don't want any uh, projection. Being a teacher is projection enough. So this sense of spiritual intermediary of symbols uh, enliven the world of objects into thinking that the possibility within objects exists to evolve out of being an object into however. But how would we do that? I mean, it's like evolving out of an object. How do you evolve out of an object? We just carry objectness with us, objectivity with us. And we don't ever seem in the course of our spiritual journeys to evolve out of an object. In fact, we just get more entwined within it and it feels very compelling. It feels like a possibility. It feels like a potentiality. It feels like we're having states of mind that other forms aren't having and that gives us some excitement, some enticement, some possibility that we're rolling in a proper direction because forms are like billiard balls. But in fact, we remain formed. Okay? So if the Buddha had stopped at the first three foundations, I think we would have been left pretty much where most of us start with an embellished sense of form. He it welcomes us into the body of form, but he does so uh, by allowing us to experiment with what form is in the body, both the reactions of the body uh, from its past, but also he suggests looking at the body in not our usual and typical and normal way to sort of suspend the knowing we have of it and see what's there when we aren't constantly referencing what we sense as a body. And lo and behold, we may step for a moment out of form into something that's unknowable, something that is richer or richer to the heart than the constant sense of being inside my skin all the time that the body seems to contain me within. So there's a, there's a possibility there, but it's not really flushed out sufficiently for us to move in any kind of determined way from the foundation, the first foundation. Uh, so he offers us the third foundation, which is to look at the mind as a kind of, uh, as a, with less involvement, with not so much our, our history and our, bewilderment and our reactivity, but just, just what the mind, just this state, just this, just this, just this state, just this, adding nothing to what's, what's there. And so the state of m minds are very ephemeral. They're not, they're form, but they're just, they're whiffs of form. They're like ghosts of form. And we see that from this layer of reality, uh, we can get a sense that there's something 
that some possibility that might be there because we're not adding a reactivity to this form, we're just allowing the whiff of form, the whiff of this to express itself as a state of mind, as worry, as loneliness, as brief, a grief, as whatever the state of mind might be. And so as we journey up the scale of these foundations, we are becoming less and less organized around the form and the form becomes much more ethereal, right? Ethereal. And then he, he comes to the fourth foundation and he takes us into the formlessness itself. And I, this is where the sacred can be found. This is where we can genuinely have a realization of not only anatta, not self, but also the sense that everything is of single essence and that there is something that holds all essence. And uh, it may not come right away in our practice and many of us, because we have been practicing for some time and may not have experienced this, feel discouraged and I say, no, there's no time for that. If you're discouraged, that's a state of mind. Go to the third foundation and it's just this, it's just discouragement. We don't have time to go back into a kind of, of self-doubt and self-discouragement and lock ourselves. You can't go backward in this. You gotta keep going. And so anything that seems to block the next step is itself the next step that we need to attend to. So if we're discouraged, we attend to discouragement. We don't try to get over discouragement so we can take the next step. The next step is the discouragement that we face. And that way, no, nothing can block us because everything becomes more and more refined in how we see it and how it becomes the next step for us. It's a very important point. So this sense of formlessness absolutely needs to be in the teaching. And yet many people shy away from, oh, I'm, I, I have nothing. I can't get a sense of that in my practice. It's, it's, too, you're, it's too deep. It's not too deep. And I hope tonight and throughout this, the rest of the fourth foundation, we get a sense of it in ourselves because there is a felt sense within us. Now, Awareness can't see itself because awareness is the thing that's seeing. All right? So you're not going to see awareness because that's the thing that's seeing. But there's a felt sense of awareness that we can each have. And it doesn't require uh, hours of it. You just a sense of it from time to time. You can get a sense of this. And then you know that you're moving in a wise direction towards the formless, towards the sacred towards the sacred. Now, there's a beautiful Ajahn Chah quote that I would just like to expound upon a little bit uh, in relationship to what we're already saying, uh, because I think it holds a possibility for us and perhaps a style of life that many of us don't necessarily pursue. And that quote is, uh, he said, ultimately, we are merely observing the very act of creation. Okay, so I love that because uh, like, the, uh, like the figurines on a boat bow, 
you know, you're, you're, you're like that, going into the crest of the wave like this, okay? So the very act of creation, if in my cosmology series, the whole universe is expanding at ever increasing speeds out from itself. It's becoming something creative and new in each moment. It's moving out. Nothing is remaining the same. Everything is in transition, in a creative transition, towards a new expression of itself. You see? But in our tired and somewhat burdened lives, we don't perceive the activity of life as a sense of creation itself. We just embody ourselves. Oh, I've got to go to work. It's like living yesterday, today. It's we just back up and turn around and kind of bring the mundane and the superficial and the hardened and the stressful into our life. And we never get this sense that the universe is expanding outward on itself, becoming something new each instant. And we too in our lives are part of that universe. You're not inside somewhere rolling around. You are that universe. <laughs> In fact, you are the center of the universe because the universe only has center. All things are the center. Do you know that? I love that because if that's not dharma, what is? There's no edge to the universe. It's creating the very space it's evolving into. And therefore, it's not going somewhere the whole thing is an act of creation. And so here we are in our lives, in our routine, at the edge of the earth, which is moving as rapidly as any other of these planetary balls into something that is inexplicably wondrous. And we're at the edge of that. Each moment, we are at the edge of what, something that we have never been something that we have never been. In this instant, we are something we have never been. But what we are likely to do, and what we're much more comfortable doing, is turning back around and looking at the past and getting our details and our explanations of where to go in the future from the past. And so we never partake in the very creative forces itself. You see how we limit, how we limit that? Now, there is a need to honor past influences within us. And uh, there's no question about that. I think the Buddha is uh, suggesting that we do that in the first and third foundation when he invites us into the body. And then whatever the body contains, we have to work with. And what the body contains is the scar tissue of what we have known or the abuse we have given it or the emotions that are locked into the tissues. And as we enter the body, the past begins to express itself. Also, too, in the third foundation, as the states of mind begin to move through us, we begin to see and experience the repetition of our conditioning in relationship to those states of mind. Oh, that's the anger. Oh, my God, I'm angry again. I've always been angry and all of that. And so the question then becomes not so much 
to get over this conditioned response, this karma residue. And may I say that each, the sense of self is a karma residue. What, you, what each of us take ourselves to be is a residue of the past and a film that uh, blocks the effervescent light of this creative force. And so as, we, as this karma residue called myself and called the past difficulties I have with myself, begin to show themselves, how can we bring that into the creative movement of the universe itself? You see the question? Instead of turning around, forgetting the creation entirely and just hunkering down and being with ourselves and mulling over and reacting to ourselves and, and compounding the problem through our own reaction to what we see, which is how most of us do it, how can we bring the sense of self in its formation and the residue of the past into this very act of creation itself. Now we can make it wondrous rather than burdensome. Oh, my past, I've had uh, right? We have a choice here. Because I, when Ajahn Chah says, ultimately we are merely observing the very act of creation, He's, not, he's referring to everything, not just certain things. Every thought, every emotion, every reaction is a creative response. And we keep seeing it as the opposite. We keep saying it's the old me, the old patterns, the old conditioning continuing. So as we allow this past to be seen as the past, rather than as the truth of my insurmountable burden of the past, it becomes very light and translucent. Have you noticed that in yourself when you bring the sense of reactivity or the sense of, of character attitude or whatever you might be having, if you bring it forth to the creation itself, to the movement of it moving into something unknowable, and not hold on to a, its meaning and investment as being just who I've always been and the difficulties I've always had and all of that. As we bring it forward, we can feel the possibility of this, of this past being much lighter, much more permeable, porous, much less laborsome and burdensome, and actually a movement of the present moment moving forward, some new expression of the present moment. My job, if I have a job, is simply the passive discernment of that creative force. Try it. You aren't working, it's not working the other way. Crawling back in our tomb of unforgiveness, let's try this thing. And it's to deny nothing. We're not asking us to get over anything. We're just asking it to be seen differently, to perceive it 
from a different perspective, from a different, from a different sense of creative force. You see? And then we may actually get a sense of the wonder that's contained within the burden. Not just the burden. Not just the tiresome, repetitive patterns that we have lived with. But the actual creation itself. For each moment is completely new. Completely itself. Completely wondrous. And discernment, the fourth foundation, the shapelessness of the universe. I love that. In fact, in the cosmology series I'm watching, the cosmologist says, how does the universe know whether to have you know, a, a billion protons to every neutron or vice versa or two quarks to one this or that how does it know the configuration how does it know the how what what allows it to generate that what where's that knowledge base that knowing contained and he says well scientists don't really know he says but as close as we can come is it's contained within the quantum fluctuations of each point in space now that's a scientific way of saying consciousness. That the whole thing is conscious. In fact, in quantum mechanics, a wave cannot collapse into a particle without being seen, observed in consciousness. Consciousness is this discerning quality, is this formlessness is the place that the Buddha is now taking us in the revered, into reverence, into the sacred of the formlessness itself. He's taking us to consciousness, not my consciousness, not the content of my personal pain and representation and content, not that. Not that, because that was the third foundation as we laid out and saw the content of our own consciousness. <coughs> but awareness, consciousness without content, consciousness without content, the deep stillness of abiding. And with that deep stillness of abiding, Intrinsic, inherent in that, is the wonder of the creativity itself. Suddenly the sacred is present, not as a manufactured idol, an intermediary between myself and my mind's idea of the sacred, but a living reality, an abiding truth deeply felt within stillness. And we have the capacity, each one of us, the remnants of our karma, has the capacity to move into this. 
to move into this. So you can see that the fourth foundation is not something I'll skip until he starts a new series. <laughs> because to do so is to miss everything. You have only form left. You have only what you know life to be. And it can't be transcended within the logic of our knowing. I know about this. I know how, how maybe I'll try this particular idea. It's all coming. The logic comes from the expression of form itself. It's bred from the objective perspective and viewpoint. And therefore holds us to that, no matter how refined and how intelligent that logic may be. It needs a transcendent possibility. It needs wonder. It needs an infusion of mystery, of not knowing, of no certainty. But if that scares us, you can see where we'll go. We'll go right back to form, because form is an, in its most Accessible form is known. And that's where I can, okay, wow, that was really scary. I just had a moment of wonder. <laughs> now, I, now I know who you are, and I know myself looking in the mirror. Yeah, I've got it all down. Okay, now let me go back and sit from there, right? How many of us have done that? You see? It's as if we were the one that that pounds in the tether. We're the one that does that. No one's doing that to us. It's not a punishment. But you have to ask yourself, you know, where, how do I, where do I really want to go with this? How far do I want to stretch this tether? Or do I want to cut it? Do I want to cut the tether? Hmm, I don't know. So the question that invites the wonder, you see, remembering that awareness is impossible to see because it's the thing that's seeing, still you can say, what is seen out of my eyes? What is seen through my eyes, through, eye, through the eyes? Now if you ask yourself that question, it's not what is seen, because what is seen holds you in the form and expression of the objects that are perceived. But when you ask what is seen, then you have the felt sense of something that makes seeing anything possible. And suddenly, we have a rupture in the dimension of only form. Doesn't your heart yearn for that? Rupture? Are we going to dance around this our whole life? Bowing, reading, giving praise to others that seem to be there where we aren't? Are we going to move into this thing? And if so, let's do it in a wise direction with a practice that actually makes this possible. What is seen 
And then when you sense that, what happens is we have to get out of the way. Because what is seen has its own activity, has its own movement. And it's no longer controllable. Controllable is only a strategy of form. Control, I control you, I control the circumstances, I control anything that I can in my environment, which is other aspects of form. So control is an extension of the perception of seeing form. So what's on the perception of seeing formless? You're not going to like this word. Faith. You have to relinquish. You have to. It's the relinquishment of control. It's faith. Right? And when the whole is seen formlessly, faith is what governs that. Is what, the, is where, is what governs that movement. And faith is the very wonder of the creation itself. See how beautiful this is? So there, we're asking ourselves to be at the crest and to have faith. And that faith has to be huge. It's not faith in someone or something. That would take us back to form, wouldn't it? This is faith in wonder. This is wondrous faith. I don't know. That's about all I can say. And, the, and we'll, we'll find ourselves you know, falling back into form again and again because that's where our, the momentum of our conditioning rests. It rests in the past. It doesn't rest in the creative movement of the present. It rests in looking at the present from the past and then surmounting or reflecting or pondering what to do from the knowledge of the past into the present. So we never actually get to the present. We're always one step back in the past, pondering the present through those limbs. So what does it ask to do? It asks us to surrender that perspective. Now, I know, I'm just letting, this is the yellow brick road, okay? I'm not taking it. I'm not going anywhere. I don't care. Like I'm out of here. I'm going to hang garlic around my window. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. That's fine. You can have that. Just listen to it. <laughs> Just let the wonder in. Just let the wonder in. Like you're rolling down your windows. Right? And Just letting the air in. Go at your own speed. But for God's sakes, let's know this exists. So surrender is surrendering to wholeness. Releasing ourselves back to wholeness. Well, of course. See, 
we try to manipulate it by saying letting go, but letting go is a calculated idea of what I have to do to continue to exist with less pain. So I'll let go of my suffering, keeping myself in an isolated and less burdensome position, but still in form of me. This is surrender. And discernment, I love discernment. Because as judgments decrease, as the forms, as the form gets more light and airy and spacious, as the sense of I, the karmic residue of I, because what forms do are compare and contrast. I'm a better form than you are, right? So that's what forms do. So as we become less certain of our formness, judgments decrease. And as judgments decrease, space arises. Where judgments consume that space, space arises. And what arises in that space that takes over from judgment is discernment. Discernment is a quality of awareness itself. We've talked about it in terms of passive and active discernment. And let me just talk a little bit about passive discernment. Passive discernment is the willingness and ability to just see what is there. It sees form passing and held in awareness. Awareness holds all form. So it also sees itself as a passing movement of form within awareness. And the quieter we get, awareness gets larger. And as awareness gets larger, it sees more form passing within itself. And the analogy I've used now, and I think is a good one, is from my friend and colleague, Guy Armstrong, who says, it's like being the sun with your back to the sun. That's awareness. When what you look out into space, everything is dark. That's objectless awareness, which could also be called the absolute or the unconditioned. But then an object passes in front of you, and therefore the sun strikes it, it is seen as an object. It's this. Something just happened there. You can think about what just happened there, or there is the implicit knowing that something just happened there. And awareness holds the implicit knowing of that. So passive awareness sees thought arising because thought is the first expression of form that form takes. Very again, ephemeral, very translucent. When you look and see what a thought is, what, what is a thought? I don't know what it is. We sure believe in them, but it's, I don't know what it is. No one does. We just believed in these words. And so 
the function of discernment is to directly perceive what limits awareness. It sees what limits it. And if a thought is believed, it sees that happening. It sees the loss of the formless into form. That's what an insight is. discernment, seeing. And that's why it feels so impactual, so immediate, so revelatory. Because it is. It's coming from something that is not intellectual. It's not geared by the intellect, by the intelligence at all. Doesn't even go through that door until it's reflected upon. And then there is active discernment. But let me, the, the two functions of discernment is that you directly perceive what limits awareness and directly understand the benefits of presence. There is also the acknowledgement of of the benefits of it. You see the space, you see the lightness, you see the freedom, you see the lack of suffering, you see the quiet, you see the loss of drama, you see the intelligence. All of that is part of what discernment sees. And so the more we're able to discern, the more we acquire the taste to discern. And the more we want to get out of the way of in, from obscuring that discernment. Because it's delicious in its wonder. And it feeds upon itself in exactly the same way that form fed upon itself when all there was in our life was form. You remember when you were young and you thought the world was yours to conquer. It fed upon itself. And discernment also sees how it's misidentified itself. That's the other thing it sees. What else could see that? Oh, I've taken myself to be that thought. That's what the third foundation is. Discerning presence. And it also sees where it takes that state of mind and makes something of it, adds a narrative, adds a story, adds a dimension that isn't there when it is just observed as just this. Just this. And the other quality I cannot ever leave out is that one of the values of presence that is discernible is the opening and arising of the heart. It's true warmth of being, true caring, true connectedness. And since objects are no longer seen as obstructions, in fact, they aren't even seen as objects that are themselves true, that was the world of form, the perceptual ideas that we gave objects, They seen as connectedness. If objects aren't intrusive, 
what is seen is the fact that all things are together. And that is discerned. No Ten Commandments from heaven here. A direct, direct impact of life being lived through itself. The creative expression of something becoming something it has never been. Who could guide that? Who could tell you what you were? When what you are is not what you are now. And so there is the active discernment. I talked about passive discernment is just seeing justice, not adding anything to justice, just seeing justice. But oftentimes, seeing justice is, you may see it and then feel like there's something back there that needs more exposure. Something back there is catching me, bringing me back into form. And just seeing it isn't sufficient in many of our cases. A case in point, and there are countless cases in point, would be judgment. I was told as a Dharma student just to see judgment. Judging, judging, judging. And you can be passively discerning of judging, not even have more judgments of judging. It's just judging, except it's so repetitive and so continuous you wonder whether, and you also feel something in a judgment. There's some sensing that it's not alone, that it holds something else. And then a quarry begins. What is this? What's going on in here? Now we're into active discernment. Right? We're looking not just at the bare data, the bare appearance of something, but is there something behind it that's making more of it than what I can perceive it being? And as you look at judgment, you see that you are holding self-assumptions within judgment that create the sense of a fixed object seeing a fixed subject and weighing in with judgment. And judgment is a symptom of those self-assumptions. Usually those self-assumptions have to be negative because why would you put somebody else down unless you wanted yourself to rise? So what you're feeling when you judge is that intuitive sense of, something, of you putting something down so you can rise. And that's a part of what you sense when you just perceive judgment. And that's why judgment needs some details, needs some deeper and more subtle observation. Do you see? So when that happens, we have to actively discern. We have to go into it. See, what's going on here? And you don't do this analytically. An analysis takes us back to form. All knowledge and analysis is just holding us into the past expression of a deliberation of logic within the dimension of form does not and is not and cannot be helpful. But you, so you go with discernment. And so when you feel judgment, you see at the moment that judgment is occurring, you feel the sense of self-deprivation. 
in the moment of oh, I see what's going on here. And if you're willing to go into that, you have to ask for it. It will not come unless you want it to come. Because why it hasn't come is because you haven't wanted it to come. There's been an active blocking of the, of the deeper, more infiltrating assumptions of our life. An active blocking not to see them. So you have to re, you have to, okay, I want to see this. That's where intention comes, you see? It's, a, it's knocking at the door again with a fresh motive. I want to see this thing. And then it will open. Because the fear will no longer compress it closed. There's something much greater working now in alignment to showing itself than the fear that kept it closed. And that is the discerning quality of the mind. The curiosity of the mind. I'm going to go a little over. Okay? I, but I want to get, there's, I have some more to say. <laughs> curiosity is a very important quality. Interest is a very important quality of this whole discerning process because it really drives intention. If you're not curious about your intention, then your intention is just flat. It's dead. You can't arouse it to be alive unless there's interest in what you're intending. And so, you, to flush out the curiosity, now the curiosity can be primary, that can be, I want to know what's true, that's a primary curiosity. Curiosity that carries the intention to know what is true is very different than a curiosity that's just trying to further its knowledge base. I wonder what the weather's going to be. That's knowledge or secondary curiosity. There's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't take you into what's true. What's true requires a deeper level of intonement in oneself, of investment into, I'm going where this thing is true. And it gets very interesting in there because it gets very curious and exciting. The more you uncover, the more curious you become about what's left to discover. That curiosity is a function of the creative universe. Because you don't know. You're no longer holding yourself back in what you've been. You're now on the cusp of what you are becoming. And it's only from there that curiosity can move forward. It's not going to move forward when you think of all the burdens of your past that you have to see. And there's going to be no curiosity. The door's shut on that. As soon as you burden it down and labor it with your past. You see? This is irrespective of chronological age, ladies and gentlemen. So I don't want to hear you're too old. Discernment has no age. Now I want to introduce, because next talk I will bring much more content and thoroughness to this. I want to introduce what the Buddhist talked about when he, he actually 
describes in his way, in his definition, what discernment is. And he does this through the Kalama Sutra. Sutta. And uh, he, he talks about, he, he talks about, he a, absolute refute, refutes absolutely any leaning, any leaning whatsoever. He does this in external, in an external voice, but he does it in the third foundation as an internal voice, seeing states of mind. But now he does it as an external refusion of any leaning whatsoever. And it is the most, it's one of the most holy pronouncements because it takes him out of the picture. It, it is so um, liberating because it liberates you from him as the final refuge. And I'll talk more about the historical context of this comment, but this is what he says to a group of people who have asked him, how do we know, know what a teacher, a good teacher, and all these people come through here claiming they're the ones that know, how do we know that? And he says, do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in the scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon axiom, nor upon plausible reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over, nor upon another seeming ability, nor upon the consideration, this monk must be our teacher, he's so wise. These things are good, these things are blamable. You will know them because they resonate within you as true. And that they will benefit in your happiness and in others' happiness and in a direct realization and not from hearsay. And this is the extraordinary, challenging, radical statement, perhaps of all time. And it fits completely into what we're saying tonight about discernment. And I would like to end it there, and I will go into this sutta with much more detail next time. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? So if you are young with many children, or if you are old with many grand or great-grandchildren, if you are single, if you are alone or coupled, it does not matter. Your position could not be any closer to the cusp of that creativity by adding or subtracting any acts, any atom of your life.
Are you willing to join it? That's the question. Okay, we have just a very brief time for any questions or comments that anyone might have. Yes? Could, could you say just a little bit more about um, finding the wonder and possibility in the mental formation? Yes, the, the question is, how, if, uh, could I say a little more about the wonder in finding, finding the wonder within mental formation? Okay, so if you see it from what you have known it to be, anything, you will not see it wondrously. You'll see it as you have known it. And, because, and what blocks wonder is what you have known something to be. How can what you've known something to be be wondrous? Those are, you can see, right, that there's a, that's an oxymoron, right? So it doesn't mean that you deny what you see or what you know. It's just that what is being seen is always more than what you know it to be, if you relax to it. If you, if you try to see around it or see it differently or try to bring it into different context, you're just going to freeze it. You're actually reacting to what you've known it to be and you're trying to wiggle your way out of it so that you can have some wonder in relationship to something that's a hardship. So it doesn't work that way. When you get to know something, by repetitively seeing it over time so that you see it again and again and again and every time each time it arises because you're willing to look a little bit of its of its um, intensity comes off of it and over time it just doesn't hold the same reactions that we used to have from it and then as we sit through not only through the reactivity but through the history of it and all of that. And we just don't keep reconfirming that history or infusing that history back into it. It, it begins, to, you know those old Alka-Seltzer commercials where you put a an Alka-Seltzer in a glass and you just see us all this kind of, right? You, I, you, have to be, yeah. you have to be 60. <laughs> <laughs> Any case, that's a little bit like what this happens to the form and shape of anything that we really want to get to the essence of. Remembering that the mind is the thing that implanted that essence, it's also the mind that can take it away. It itself doesn't have to do anything, we just have to show up for it and relax the mental way we have known it. And very slowly it starts melting now, what happens in that is we get scared in its melting because it isn't the only thing that melts. We melt along with it. And then we start feeling funny, you know, like, I'm too spacious, I'm too airy, and so I've got to get back. And now it comes back too. It comes back in direct proportion to us coming back. And it goes in direct proportion to our willingness to go because we form it. We form our karmic residue is what makes it something. We're investing our karmic residue into that thing, which makes it a thing. 
So as we become less prescribed, it becomes less detailed. And now it's like, well, but at the same time, remember discernment also sees the advantage of, advantages of presence. So it doesn't just get scared, and our minds can run to that reaction. Oh, I'm scared, I'm too, I'm too, I'm without an edge. You know, I'm too spacey, or I don't know what you'll feel. I'm just not white like I normally am. But, if we just see the event, what's going on here that's of value, not of, not beyond the fear, what's of value happening? Because discernment can see that too. And you'll see, oh wow, something refreshing is coming up, something new, something something unknown, something not held within my ideas. Life is being transformed in front of myself just by the simple quieting of my inward knowing. And so then it loses shape. And what happens is that it is shown, it shows itself as emptiness. What does that mean? It shows itself as awareness. All things are aware. All things are held within awareness. Oh, there's only one essence to anything. And at that moment when we touch that, there is a genuine Sistine Chapel touch of the sacred. Right? We say, oh, but you can't proclaim it. God! Or this is my true self. As soon as you do that, you have your true self, world's larger, a lot better, a lot more space, but you're still there as your true self. <laughs> or the capital self. Cap I love Buddhism. It doesn't allow you to land. Landing is the, only non, is the only place you can land. If you want to dwell, if you want to abide in the sacred. just want you to feel it instead of skipping on to the next question real quick. Let's just sense the possibility here. The possibility every one of us should sense, whether we're sensing where the conversation or where the thought is going, that's irrelevant. The possibility, how far can this be from us? I want to bring this so close that you can't deny access to it. You may deny your access to it, but you can't deny that it's accessible. And it's that close, you're going to have a hard time betraying your true heart and turning away, if I can get it that close to you. So I'm going to get it that close, if you're going to be in this room. Maybe that's all for tonight. Huh? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.